Welcome to Data Brew by Databricks with Denny and Brooke. The series allows us to explore various topics in the data and AI community. Whether we're talking about data engineering or data science, we'll interview subject matter experts to dive deeper into these topics. In this season, we're going to interview, uh, continue our conversations on data leadership. And while we're at it, we're going to be enjoying our morning brew. My name is Denny Lee. I'm a developer advocate here at Databricks and one half of Databrew. And hello, everyone. My name is Brooke Wenig, machine learning practice lead at Databricks and the other half of Databrew. Today, we are very excited to introduce Nitya Ruff, head of open source programs and fellow at Comcast, as well as chair of the Linux Foundation Board of Directors. Welcome, Nitya. Great to be here, you guys. So at Databricks, we love open source. But to take a step back, what exactly is open source? Yeah, you know, open source came into being about 30 some years ago, and it was really a new and open and collaborative way of developing software. Um, and it started with uh, the introduction of a license called GPL or GNU Public License, which gave people four freedoms, you know, access to source code, um, the ability to use it for anything that they wanted. Uh, they could then modify it and share their modifications and also distribute the software. These freedoms were brand new and this allowed people to actually openly, transparently collaborate on the same piece of software, no matter where they were or which company they worked for or which organization they worked for. So, for example, Linux, um, Linus Torvalds, 30 years ago, released uh, his initial work that he was work, uh, on, on the code and said, hey, guys, do any of you want to contribute to this? Do you want to collaborate with me on this? and look at where it is today. Because it's open and freely available and people can contribute to it across the world, uh, Linux has continued to grow and it dominates you know, every single field. And while it started out in a very ideological way, if you will, by changing software freedoms, it is today adopted both in technical companies and enterprises like myself, Comcast, as we go through digital transformation, and really everybody, governments, universities, et cetera, and every one of us in some way or the other uses open source. I hope that kind of gave you a little bit about the history as well as what open source is. Definitely. And so I know you mentioned that open source started about 30 years ago, but today there's been a huge uptick in open source projects. What do you think has been causing this big change in demand for open source projects versus proprietary projects? That's a great question. You know, in the beginning, open source, frankly, was lagging behind proprietary. So I remember in 1998, when I worked at Silicon Graphics, um, our IREX, which was our proprietary uh, operating system, was far, far ahead of Linux. And so we often, in Linux was imitating or trying to catch up with proprietary software. And then there came a point in time where it far surpassed any development on uh, proprietary software. And uh, frankly, all new innovations, whether it's in AI, in the data space, in um, blockchain, etc., is happening in open source. And I think it's because of two things. One, the open source license itself makes it easy to consume, contribute, modify, and so more and more people can get involved. And when you have a global organ, you know, global sphere of 
developers collaborating together, you can't beat that. You can't beat the speed of innovation that happens when everyone is involved in, you know, modifying and moving things forward. So I think that's one of the reasons it's um, become so popular. A, it's everywhere and B, it's fast to innovate. And companies that are becoming software companies, it's easier to start with open source software um, and then innovate from there rather than build everything from scratch. Excellent. And I think that really segues into the next question I'm about to ask, which is like, well, then with those businesses that, uh, that produce or work with open source, how do you balance that idea of, you know, community versus company interests, right? There's plenty of companies, especially this day and age where you've got the rewrite of various licensing, right? That certainly complicates things. How do you, how, what, how, what do you see as the right approach and how to balance those two sometimes battling aspects? Exactly, exactly. Um, companies really benefit tremendously from open source innovation, right? Uh, whether it is because you're consuming it to produce new services that you're taking to market, or you are based on an open source project like um, you know, Apache Spark and, and Databricks in the early days. Um, you really have to sustain that innovation. You have to make sure that there is a, a vibrant and healthy community behind the projects that you are dependent upon or leveraging. And so it is very important for companies to contribute back to the project. So whether it's money or innovation uh, or code, um, projects cannot sustain themselves if all of us as companies keep taking but never giving. And so to me, that's one big aspect that companies need to balance, not just consume, but become a contributor. Second, they can also participate in the governance of the project make sure that it has a, a diverse set of uh, contributors and not just dominated by one company or another. Um, and yes, you're right, um, you know, respecting open source norms uh, and not changing licenses midstream is so important because it confuses people. Um, and, and frankly, it, it also is a little deceptive because if you say source available or we, we can charge, we'll charge you if you're a business, but we won't charge you. Um, it, it really undermines the four freedoms that open source started with and the community takes that very seriously. And it's important to be neutral also when you uh, contribute something to the community, right? And not force your agenda upon um, the community. So it's it, those are the two important things to me is if you take, give back, but also make sure to balance both interests and realize that you're not alone. Uh, you're really uh, one of a, a large community. That makes a lot of sense. So then, so related to exactly that, you know, there's the company aspect, which we just discussed, but then let's shift it to the, the people themselves, right? The, the idea of this only succeeds when you can go ahead and bring enough people who actually want to help the community and who actually want to give away the code that they write in essence, right? Um, so yeah, how do you bring new people in? How do you bring new adoptees into the open source? Because the community, like no matter how much we talk about company interest, the reality is that the community exists because you've got uh, people and adoptees that actually believe in that mission, 
So how, how do you bring more people in? I'm just curious. Exactly. And I mean, if you look at some of the best projects, you find that um, they create a very welcoming and safe environment for uh, people to consume and contribute, you know, be users, uh, to then go from user to occasional contributor to committer to, you know, actually being a serious part of that community. And it could be code of conducts, uh, and it could be that the community uh, norms in terms of communication, in terms of how uh, people who are not respectful are, are you know, treated or, or made to uh, conform, if you will, to community. Um, it could be that they have documentation, everything from readme to contribution guide to documentation about what the project is, so that it's really easy to contribute to that project and be a part of that community. Some of the best communities include uh, great people, great processes, um, just building trust you know, with uh, community. Because these are folks who are giving up their work right, to, to the project. And you wanna make sure that they feel um, that their work is respected and that they are respected when they're part of that community. So I think it's it's all of the above um, is what's needed, and and you're you're absolutely right. We need more people in open source, and we need to sustain open source, and so we need to create this environment where they can come in and and contribute. And I love that emphasis on the community, because you didn't say like it's about great code quality. It's about great people working together, and so just double dipping or not double dipping. Sorry, doubling down. Um, on what you had said earlier about diversity. So you had said making sure that not just one company dominates. Uh, according to a GitHub study, 95% of all contributions to open source projects come from men. How do you encourage more diversity and inclusion in open source projects? And are there ways to contribute that aren't just filing PRs? And, and that study was such a wake-up call. Um, you know, we, we would think that... Uh, there was about 10 or 15% women and underrepresented in uh, open source. But the study really kind of showed us that it was uh, more dire than that. And, and some of it could be that women, um, some women don't uh, have used a very gender neutral name, if you will, when they contribute, because studies have also shown that if you contribute as a woman, sometimes your uh, pull requests are rejected. And uh, so they uh, tend to communicate in a very gender neutral way. But uh, all that aside, I think we have a lot of work to do from a diversity perspective. And I, there are some really welcome signs uh, from the Google Summer of Code where uh, open source projects and mentors are matched up with mentees uh, to Outreachy, which is doing a great job of also uh, encouraging more women and underrepresented to contribute to the kernel, which is one of the most difficult projects to contribute to, to mentorship at the Linux Foundation. And many other organizations are doing mentorships and scholarships. I think that's the key is um, matching up someone new with someone who knows the norms of open source, sometimes which are not written down. Um, to be able to guide them to a successful contribution. And once people make a successful contribution, they tend to stick and they tend to stay. And you also asked about another uh, really good question, which is um, 
what are the other ways people can contribute? For a very long time, we've often recognized only code contributions. And so we've not really recognized the heroes behind the scenes, if you will, who make open source successful. It's the people who do documentation. It's the people who organize community events. It's the people who do events and marketing and logos and website maintenance and so on and so forth. And, you know, very often the people doing all those roles are women or underrepresented. So their contributions often gets undercounted because we only count code. Um, so I would say one of the things that we are also doing in the open source community is recognizing that there are various ways of contributing and that all of them are important and matter. And then second, as we discussed earlier, I think through scholarships, mentorships, uh, we can improve uh, the diversity in open source as well. Yeah, and I really like that idea of mentorship, preparing somebody that wants to contribute with somebody who knows all the norms of contributing. Because the first time I tried to contribute to Apache Spark, I was just doing a doc fix. Um, one of the sentences just needed to be rewritten. It was copy and pasted from elsewhere and just was not correct. And it took me four hours to be able to contribute to the project for a one line fix. I didn't even have to write tests, but it's all of the norms of if the sentence is too long, where the line break needs to be, um, what are the standards for naming conventions of your pull request, et cetera. And so after struggling and going back and forth a lot, I just sat down with one of my coworkers and we knocked it out in 10 minutes. And so I, I do think it's really impactful if once you learn how to do it, then you're far more likely to stick with it versus just filing issues, but not actually contributing to fixing those issues. Exactly. Well said. And so how do you ensure the success of these open source projects? Everybody's very eager to put their name on something and saying, I'm the founder of XYZ project. And you see zillions of projects on GitHub. What are the, tr what are the tips that you have for making projects successful? And, and uh, GitHub has put together some really nice guidelines as well. And I like the fact that they, um, you know, build into the tool, um, you know, markers for success and guidelines for success so that you don't have to read through lots of checklists and other things, right? But it really starts with uh, intentionality, as with any good thing, right? You have to say... I want to build a project that is welcoming, that's diverse, that is easy to understand, that's easy to contribute to, and that's successful. And um, when we companies, for example, open source things, we actually have a checklist of things we ask our maintainers to do. Uh, first of all, have a, a very you know, logical name for the project or maybe a fun one, right? Because people love fun logos and fun stickers and things like that. Second, uh, have a great readme, which gives people a sense of what this project is. Third, have a license. Um, often companies will not touch open source projects if they don't have a license. Uh, and make sure it's a friendly license. And, we'll, uh, and we should really double down on license discussions later as well. And then have a code of conduct for the project, you know, laid out as to what culture you're trying to build for the project, just as you would build a company or a new um, organization. You know, say we respect everyone, uh, we will deal with offenders, you know, things of that nature. So people feel assured that you care and that you're building a good community here. 
The next thing I would say is, you know, organizations like the Open Source Security Foundation have checklists for security. And you can even get badging uh, and you can say, my project follows secure practices and get badged for that. Be transparent, communicate project roadmaps, project intent. So people are not confused when they submit something and you reject it. Um, there's, there's a reason why. Have events, speak at events, um, have a presence on Twitter so people know how to contact you. Have communication forums, whether it's a mailing list or Slack or other ways that you know people can talk to you. And one of the, the nicest ways you can do it if you are large enough and you reach a critical mass is to host it at a foundation like the Apache Foundation or the Linux Foundation because they have very nice standardized practices. They have oversight committees like the Apache Spark has a, a group that oversees it. And they have you know, ways to make sure that things are diverse and that they are done correctly. They also provide events and forums where you can speak like the Apache uh, conference as well as the Linux Open Source Foundation conference. And so that's an easy one uh, way of doing things is, is just host them in a neutral home like that. No, that makes a lot of sense. And just to add a couple of notes, both Delta Lake and, uh, and MLflow are actually a part of the Linux Foundation for precisely that reason as well. So, but uh, I want to segue in because you've actually said a lot that I would love to unpack. And so let's actually start with the licensing, actually. Uh, I, I love the fact that you brought that up. So let's definitely dive into it. If, if I am doing an open source project, you know, like, do you have any advice or some, some context about what licensing somebody should choose and what, what's the, like, why they would choose one license over the other? Like, you know, and since this is a recording, we do want to call out, there's no legal proceedings here. So this is not legal advice for anybody, <laughs> but by the same token, advice from the standpoint of at least looking at what these type of licenses can, how they can work for you, work better in which situation. Denny, that's such a great point. I'm not a lawyer either. But I play one on TV, no. <laughs> but, um, We're all guilty of that one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm not a lawyer, um, but I work very closely with lawyers. And every open source user, contributor, creator of a new project really should understand open source licenses. Um, I know there are thousands of licenses, but the open source initiative approves only a certain number of licenses. And I think they have less than uh, maybe 50 licenses that are uh, licenses that in their estimation and their study um, meets the definition, open source definition, which is it guarantees the four freedoms we talked about, uh, you know, access to source code to examine, to use for any purpose, to distribute and to modify. And so you're absolutely right. First and foremost, if you're starting a new project, please add a license tag to it, right? And then second, um, you should choose an OSI approved license, open source initiative approved license. You can go to their website and you can see which licenses are approved, which are not. Don't make up your own license for, for goodness sake. And don't do custom licenses and, you know, full letter word licenses and stuff like that. Because I, as a company, when I consume, I will not consume those types of licenses. I only consume 
uh, OSI approved licenses. And if you want your project to succeed and become big, uh, you should make it you know, easy to consume for people. Um, the next one really uh, in terms of which license to use depends upon what you want to accomplish with the project. You really have a choice of two major categories of licenses, uh, either copyleft licenses like GPL, VGPL, LGPL rather, and GPL V3 and things like that, which are considered, um, you know, uh, very derivative, meaning um, if you are using one of those licenses, you, you will need to contribute back if you modify the code and you also need to uh, carry the same license forward. They have a lot more requirements in terms of uh, abiding by that license. And then if you want it to be more business friendly, you can use Apache 2.0 or MIT or uh, BSD 1, 2, and 3. And to me, um, a lot of companies do not want to use uh, copyleft licenses because of the restrictions that come with it. So if you want companies to use your code, I would go with a more permissive, you know, business-friendly license. And, and frankly, you really need to study, go, go to OSI, go to TLDR on licenses and study a little bit more about licenses and not just take it for granted. Uh, it's an important decision uh, developers need to make. So a bit earlier, you're talking about changing licenses. Is it possible for a project to start with one license and then decide they want to change it? Does the old code still remain with that old license? How does that work? Yes, it's, it is possible to change the license um, with the next release that you're making. You could say release 8.0 and beyond is you know a new license and 7.0 and before will continue to stay on the old license. And you do need to communicate it very clearly to your uh, users. And, and, you know, frankly, that's why a lot of us just stay stranded on an older uh, release, because <laughs> when the license changes, we may not uh, like the new license. And so we may kind of choose to stay on the old license, which is also not good because you're not up to date from an innovation and a security patch perspective. So you do need to... Uh, consider making any license changes very, very seriously. So one of the things that you sort of implied when you're talking about the licensing, especially, not implied, I'm sorry, called out, <laughs> was basically the developers themselves actually need to really care about licensing. So one of the things that I want to dive into a little bit then is more why should they spend all this time? Because if you think about it, this developer is no longer just going ahead and writing code, right? They're, they're actually now understanding oh, I've got to talk to the community, I've got to slack, I've got to answer people questions, I've got to do all these other things. And now you're telling me, I have to understand licensing too, what is this? And so, but of course, to, to, to actually provide some context here, so not just leaving this unit right, right? It seems to me though, this actually sets the developer up for a very good career path as well, right? It allows them and I'm just wondering, could you provide a little context behind why you feel that, especially when all of these developers, they are in fact doing this, it, it actually boosts their career. So how, like, can you sort of talk about that a little bit? Because it's not just about the company now, it's also about the developer, uh, him or herself, you know? It's, it's to be honest, um, you know, in the early days of open source, people knew 
uh, and very deliberately chose which license they wanted to use when they started a brand new project. And when they contributed to projects also, they were making a statement that, you know, I, I do want to contribute to this project. Um, and, and as the days went by, we kind of just take open source for granted. It's there and, and we just consume it and we just use it without even looking at licenses and things of that nature, right? And, and if you work for a company as a developer, your company cares about the license you use. So from uh, if you want to stay within the guardrails of your company's policy, you should care about which license you use. And also when you contribute, right, your company cares about the licenses. So from a career perspective, you know, your com you, you really need to respect your, your company norms. But aside from that, if you as an independent developer are starting a project, you can really make a project highly successful or not successful or used by companies, not used by companies based on your license choice. And so I think it's, it's, it's a key part of ensuring that whatever you do as a developer is successful and that it's with intent, right? And it's, it's, it has the right terms for use and terms for contribution and uh, you do it very objectively. Did I answer your question, Danny? Yeah, you did actually. Uh, sorry. Yes, you did. Um, it, uh, it, it really calls out the fact that in order for you as a developer to basically work within that context of licensing, that it's it's just it allows them to expand and broach the topic with other people, with other businesses, and allows them to go ahead and actually build up their own career path in that process. So I, I do think it, yeah, I think we definitely got it covered here. And, and you know, frankly, uh, if you're a developer today and going into the foreseeable future, you will need to work with open source. Open source is such a huge part of what you do. And licensing is a huge part of open source, the way open source works, right? It's the community and the license. Those are the two elements uh, that make open source. So understanding both of them, the community norms as well as licenses, is extremely important to being successful as an open source contributor or, or a developer. And one thing I just wanted to add on, because I'd seen your interview with Sastra recently, which is you can actually talk about what you've done at work if you contribute to open source projects. It's possible that you work at a company and you can't disclose what you'd worked on for the past three years when you're interviewing for a new job. But if you say, hey, I was a contributor to Delta Lake or Apache Spark, people can actually see those contributions. So it can definitely help you out with your career path and career progression. Sorry, I, just to add to what you said uh, on the reverse side, it also helps companies hire really good developers because their work is in the open, right? If people visit Spark and MLflow and Delta Lake, they see the quality of the work that you guys do and it excites them and they want to get involved. Exactly, exactly. And so that actually segues very nicely into my next question, which is how do companies justify dev time for open source contributions? Because I know every company, they're always under resource, especially on the technical side. How do they set aside specific budget to contribute back to these open source projects? If it is something that is so core and key to your product or services, uh, and you have a dependency on that particular project, it is dead easy to justify it because you do need to stay on top of the roadmap. You do need to stay um, at the table for the project and you need to uh, contribute so that you are not kind of 
responding to somebody else's direction on the project, but you are influencing and kind of guiding the project as well. Um, so if your roadmap depends upon a project, yes, absolutely easy to justify that you need to be involved. It's less easy if it's just a tangential library that you're using or something else and you make a change to it and you then move on to the next product and, and you just don't have time to go back and package it and contribute it back to that project. So that I find is, is harder to do. Um, many companies are also choosing to set aside one day a week, for example, to let people in their, in their companies contribute to open source. Um, we tried that as well. We said, you know, we selected a number of uh, people who wanted to be open source uh, enthusiasts and fellows, and we got the permission of their leadership to uh, set aside one day to contribute to certain projects that we felt were important to our success as Comcast. And so it, it, it worked quite well until priorities changed and, you know, people needed to go uh, you know, do something more urgent, right? So yes, it's an ongoing challenge, Brooke, uh, to justify time if it is not so core to your, you know, company success. Do you find that it often spills into outside of work time? For example, they're contributing to the open source project on the weekend. So it's something that they don't just do during their day job. Yes, yes. I, and a lot of people who uh, are super engaged in the mission of that particular project and truly believe in that project. Or, for example, I know people who have gone from company to company but still continue to be attached to a project that they've been contributing to, say, since college or uh, since their first job, and they do it on the weekends and the evenings, and uh, they do it willingly because it's, it's such a labor of love for them. And... Open source developers often have two lives, right? They, they kind of have their corporate life and then they're also known in the community and they uh, are um, uh, luminary in the community sometimes uh, because of the work that they do in the community. And, and, and it's, it's something that is enjoyable to them that they have these two you know, worlds that they belong to. Oh, uh, excellent set. Uh... With one of the things that I, I think this segues really well to my next question is then now that we're starting to see some maturity in the open source ecosystem where businesses and developers themselves, you know, whether they themselves become luminaries, whether the businesses themselves are accepting open source technologies, what do you see for the future? What excites you about the future for the, the open source ecosystem? One of the things that's excite, uh, that excites me a lot, Denny, is what I do, right? Companies are actually creating open source program offices. Uh, not just, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, or, but, um, you know, enterprises like Comcast, like Capital One, like Bank of America, like Target, uh, are taking their open source work seriously and they are appointing a center of excellence inside their companies to guide their developers to do good open source work and to reduce the friction to doing open source work inside their companies. That, I think, is a very, very good sign. The second one, I would say, is uh, a lot of us in the open source world are bringing open source practices into the company. So even when we do projects inside the company, inside the firewall, we are using collaborative practices. 
uh, why should you know three departments create the same library, right? When when one can leverage the library by doing pull requests or downloading and using it, why should we just download and use outside the company when inside the company there could be perfectly good components that everybody can leverage and use? So breaking down those silos, I love. And the third, I would say, is there's such an adoption of open source in universities today, um, not just to do uh, in the computer science departments, you know, to encourage students to learn how to do open source, but uh, open science, open data, open um, collaboration on, you know, research. And I sit on the advisory board for the UC Santa Cruz um, Baskin School of Engineering's open source office. And it's fantastic to see them encouraging, you know, more open source type of work and not just patenting of work, but open sourcing research, right, in universities. Um, and governments are doing more and more open source. Uh, European Union has written a, an open source strategy. Uh, the UK has an open UK office, for example. Um, I think it teaches us that by openly and transparently working on a common problem, we can solve any problem, whether it's in university or in business or in the community. I think that is a fantastic message to end on of the power of working together and contributing towards a common open source project. And for all of our listeners, go out there, contribute to open source projects. And remember, it's not just writing code, documentation, community management, speaking at conferences, those are all equally valuable contributions. Uh, so thank you so much today for joining us, Nitya. Uh, super enlightening session on open source projects. Thank you, Brooke and Denny. Loved it.